0: Wow, we filled up the room pretty good. General Hudson, thanks so much for inviting me to come and do this. This museum is a national treasure. And every time I'm visited, I'm I'm reinvigorated with not only the legacy of our own Air Force, but just our military history as well. It's a wonderful experience, a wonderful place to be, and have so many friends join us, including, much to my surprise, my cousin, Ron Peck, who drove over from the Belleville area <laughs> and surprised me right there. He did this once before. I was here last in 07, and uh, he did the same thing. So, Ron, thank you. Have I got any classmates in the room? Good. <laughs> you know, there's always a couple of questions that come up. Uh, Where did you get the airplanes? Uh, With a couple exceptions, I won't be answering that question, so don't waste your time writing it. Another question that comes up is, so what's with the mustache? (laughs) And it started as one of those Robin Oles mustache march things. And then I was at a party, a wedding party, um, and the bride's father was a very senior CEO of some big company, and he heard I'd written this book, and um, so he started talking to me about it, and he said, um, you know, that's really cool, and he said, I like your branding, and so on, and I said, uh, what do you mean, branding? He said, the mustache. I said, really? You you're know, you talking about a mustache as a brand? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, tell me more. He said, well, he said, nobody is ever going to remember a fat old ball-headed fighter pilot but the jackass with the mustache is hard to forget. <laughs> so. It's actually a medical experiment, trying to figure out what will grow on my lip, but why it won't grow on my head. <laughs> well, I'm honored to share with you some history that was just declassified in 2006. It started in the mid-70s and ended in the late 80s, 88. And for all that time frame, we couldn't talk about it until 06. We had a coming-out party here at the museum, and uh, it was all declassified. And then um, since then, uh, books have been written, and uh, we've done a lot of stuff to try to tell the story and get the word out. Okay, so this is the story of the Red Eagles. Uh, the men came to call themselves the Red Eagles because they thought there was a Russian fighter squadron, a weapons school-type equivalent, that called themselves the Red Eagles. And that patch was an adaptation of what was thought to be. That Russian squadron. Now, we've never been able to verify it, but it seemed pretty good. The patch was kind of cool, and so that's what we went with. Now, what I'm going to do today is follow Simon Sinek's paradigm in his book called Start With Why. Because most people don't ever get around to the why you're doing things. Instead, they go to the what you're going to get out of it. So Simon's paradigm is three stages. Why you're doing something. How you're going to get it done, and then what did you get out of it? And that's a pretty good way to go, I think. So, we came out of the aggressors. The Air Force Aggressors, a program started in the mid-70s. So I want to tell you just a couple slides about who the aggressors were, how they evolved, where they are now. And then we'll do the why, how, what that went into building an airfield, equipping it with MiGs. How do we get it done in record time secretly? and then what was in it for the United States of America overall in terms of a return on investment. And then we'll wind up with a look at today's aggressors. So, the air war in Vietnam set the stage for our requirement, the why. We were getting hammered, okay? We were getting hammered, and we didn't like that. And so, the weapons school at Nellis put together a little briefing And they had an opportunity to sit down with General Moemeyer, who was the commander of Tactical Air Command at the time, and give him this briefing. And they made points like, sir, we're going out and flying F-4 against F-4, an airplane you can see from 20 miles away, and then we're using the same tactics against each other. In other words, there we go, neither of whom is more skilled than the other, working at learning to fight against each other. It really is not a smart way to go. And what we need is a little airplane that we can train against that would be similar to the MiGs that we're facing in combat and likely to face in the future. And General Momire embraced that program and the 64th Aggressor Squadron, was set up at Nellis almost immediately, and it was equipped with T-38s because they were the right airplane to try to replicate the MiGs that we were facing. Um, They included GCI controllers in the business from the very beginning because of the Russian historical dependence on close control where they would vector the fighters in for the attack, then tell the fighter pilot he's cleared to attack, instead of sort of freelance type roving wherever you want to and killing anything that's there. So, this T-38 was hard to see, and uh, we knew that our formations and tactics from the Vietnam War were generally ineffective. So once we got the aggressors on the road, and they went out against the F-4 bases, they had the same kind of experience. They whipped up on the F-4s pretty bad, and that validated the need for the aggressors totally. And so, as a result, the squadrons were increased. The second one was formed at Nellis. One was formed at Clark. One was formed at um, Alconbury in the U.K., and they supported the Pacific and the European uh, commands. And they went out, and they really did good work for a number of years, and then the Cold War ended. The nation rejoiced, uh, spending was redistributed, and a part of the hit list were the aggressors. Well, the Air Force did one smart thing, and that was they maintained a small cadre of aggressors as a part of the big training program at Nellis known as Red Flag. And they were assigned to the Red Flag commander, and so they participated as adversaries during Red Flag exercises. And that was good. And the reason it was good is because the Air Force eventually realized it was a mistake to shut the aggressors down. And so they started standing them back up again. And as a result, we now have three aggressor squadrons, two at Nellis uh, and one at Ileson. And their mission at Nellis is to support the weapons school and, of course, the testing and evaluation and then whatever sorties left over to work with Red Flag. So that's the aggressor story. Now, let's go back. World War I, the biplane pilots waved at each other at the early days of the war. Then somebody got a little honked off at somebody else, and he shot a pistol at the other pilot. Not to be outdone, the next guy comes back with a rifle. Soon, somebody mounts a machine gun on the nose of the, of the biplane, shot the prop off. So some smart German figured out how to synchronize the machine gun so it would shoot through the props, and that was good. It was better. But let me tell you what, it was chaos. It was chaos. Until Oswald Bolke, the German ace, and some of his colleagues realized that they could generate an advantage in air fighting by working together as teams or as pairs. They had heavy radios, so it was all kind of pre-briefed plans and all of that. But the Allies then picked up on this, and when the Americans entered the war, They taught the Americans about this mutual support and working with pairs and so on. No radios, but signals and stuff like that. It was viable. So we progressed through World War II, and by the time Korea came about, the idea of air warfare had solidified into the notion of a shooter who was going to go killing and a wingman that was going to cover the shooter from getting shot down by another bad guy. So the shooter and the fighting wingman. It came into fashion. Jets replaced the prop aircraft. They had radios. But it was still gun versus gun. Man versus man. Gun versus gun. And what happened then, that being our last war, Korea, before Vietnam, we committed the ultimate error and took the tactics of the last war with us to the next war. And in Vietnam, it worked initially because initially the North Vietnamese didn't have missiles. And so it was we had an advantage because we did have missiles. And then some cat named Nguyen or something similar to that showed up a mile behind us in a MiG twenty one, hosing us with A A two, A tall, sidewinder like Infrared guided missiles. And we started getting hammered. So things had to change. And good news is, and this is the one source I will talk about, a couple of Arabs stupidly landed MiG 17s at an airfield in Israel. And then an Iraqi defected in a MiG 21 to Israel. And Israel loaned us those airplanes. And so we were able to exploit them in early programs. The, the, uh, MiG-21 was called Have Donut, and the individually, the two MiG-17s were individually named Have Drill and, or Have Drill and Have Ferry. But this was exploitation, like Jeff said. The test pilots exploited these airplanes. They found out how fast they'd go, how tight they would turn, um, and all of the different things that test pilots like to write down. Uh, no offense, General Hudson. <laughs> Uh, Test cards were never my thing. Um, But these guys, they did that, and then they turned the jets over to some of the tactical guys, and they flew a little bit, and they did comparisons and some tactical analysis. But the point of all this is, is that when this was all over, they made a pretty good movie, and they wrote books about this. Now, you're looking at Gail Peck, flying fighter pilot. I'm supposed to go into the intel shop. And pull out the books on have drill and have donut. And I'm supposed to read these books and come away as an expert in how to go air fight against that. Now, I would submit to you that that's like going to the internet and finding a book about pianos. You see? And you got black keys and white keys and three pedals and a whole bunch of strings. and When you pound on them, it makes noise. Does that in any way prepare you to play the piano? You see the similarity. That's what we were up against. So, a renaissance followed in air-to-air training, and it eventually evolved into this program called constant peg, which was sort of a capstone on our air-to-air training program. Um, we had to master every building block along the way before you move to the next one with our students. We came up with new formations that were largely developed in North Vietnam during linebacker by our guys as ways to deal with problems that they were having and not doing well with. So a lot of this came out of there. Plus, there was new thoughts about firepower. Why take a wingman along that you don't allow to shoot? I mean, you're reducing your force structure by 50%. So new thoughts about who could shoot and firepower. So these all came out of this renaissance that did bring us into a great, great, great capability in air-to-air. So... Back to the story. Why? Why did we upgrade it? I hope we've kind of answered that program a little bit. And the way it evolved is this. In the fall of 1972, I reported to Nellis as a weapons school instructor, fighter weapons school instructor in the F 4. And very soon thereafter, uh, my assistant ops officer and I, Randy and O'Neill, and I were tagged to go and learn to fly the MiG 17. And our task then in the fall of 1972 was to train a squadron of F four E crew members who were going to take the new E model with the leading edge slats, the five five, six T O modification. Probably doesn't mean anything to any of you all, but what it did is it enabled the pilot in the front seat to take control of the radar in certain modes and enhance the combat kill capability. Um, it had Tizio, a telescopic s- system on the wing that's followed the radar, so if we found a radar contact you could use the telescope to identify the bad guy, and you could shoot beyond visual range. That was the, the mindset. And so these guys were all headed. Linebacker was raging. They were all headed for Southeast Asia. And so they came through Nellis for a top-off program in the as a Squadron, and Randy O'Neill and I were their adversary in the MiG-17. We taught them how to air fight against that jet. And that whetted Randy and my appetite to a degree that you can never Never imagine. When it was all done, and this only lasted two or three months, when it was all done, Randy went to be the assistant ops, or the ops officer of the first aggressor squadron, and I went back and ultimately ran the air-to-air operation at the fighter weapons school. So at the end of my tour, and I was done with MiGs, at the end of my tour, I end up going to the five-sided squirrel cage we reverently call the Pentagon, (coughs) and new challenges. So they, looked at my skill set and background and put me in charge of bullets and bombs, which makes typical sense. We've all been there, those of you in uniform at least. Um, so I did the best I could with that. And meanwhile my friend Moody Souter uh, was inventing Red Flag. And Red Flag is a tremendous exercise at Nellis where they bring in forces, all kinds of different forces. They consolidate them into a team, a mini war, they put adversaries up, and they go and try to replicate the first ten combat missions of a war. And Pierce Spray and Tom Christie and some of the smart guys in Washington had had advocated that if they could replicate the first ten combat missions of a war, then the pilots had a high probability of surviving the whole conflict. So that was the concept behind Red Flag. And so Moody invented Red Flag, and they were so happy with Red Flag that they transferred him to Luke Air Base and gave him command an F-15 squadron, brand new. And so, since old Ish here had MiG background, I became his replacement for the second time. I'd also replaced him at the weapons school. And so that was the the beginning. Um, During that period of time, we were also flying the MiGs some. But to fly the MiGs, we had to write a test plan. And the test plan had to be approved by the two-star Director of Operations and Readiness at the Pentagon and then countersigned by the three-star research and uh, development um, AFRD at the Pentagon. Then we go fly the mission, and then we had to write a test report on how it went and get that signed by the two-star and signed by the three-star. It was a rigorous program, okay? Very rigorous. But our training hunger continued, and ultimately it led to the opportunity that I call the beginning. So... Our problem was testing versus training. We didn't need any more test reports that told us how stuff worked and what the capabilities were. We needed to go out there and do hands-on training. We needed to see how tight that guy could turn, how high he could zoom, all the different things that would allow us to understand the performance of that airplane from the eyes of a combat fighter pilot. And so one day, I'm in General Vandenberg's office to get the two-star signature on one of these other test plans, and General Vandenberg, who was a fighter pilot and understood exactly this charade we were playing, he said, expletives deleted, get me that program or get me out of it. And I was stunned. I was a major. I looked at him and I said, sir, uh, why don't we just build our own airfield and maybe we can put the MiGs on our airfield and we can do with them what we want to instead of have to beg permission to do what it all know, we all know we need to do. And he got up from his chair and he walked around with his hands behind and he went over and he sat down and he peered over his, his readers at me. He says, you know, that, that's not a bad idea. And he picked up the phone and called General Donnelly, made me an appointment, sent me up stairwell 94 in the Pentagon to General Donnelly's office. And I go in and I see General Donnelly and I'd known him for a while. He called me Gaylord just because it annoyed me. He says, Gaylord, what you got? I said, Well, sir, we want to build an airfield in the desert, and we want you to give us the MiGs, since you own the MiGs. And he laughed, and he laughed, and he laughed. And I'm staring at the Jefferson Memorial over his shoulder out of his big building uh, window on the E ring of the fourth floor. And he finally came over, and he says, You know, he says, that ain't a bad idea, actually. He says, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you can figure out how to build an airfield, he says, I'll give you the MiGs. I was stunned. So now I march back down stairwell 94, go to General Vandenberg's office, tell him this. General Vandenberg gets up from his chair and he goes over now to his credenza, you know, against the back wall. A little brown box takes the lid off the little brown box. There's two steel balls in this little brown box. And he picks them up and he starts working them. And he comes and he sits down in his chair and peers at me over the readers, And uh, he says, well, that's good. He said, let's do it. I said, you mean build the airfield and get the makes?" He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that what Donnelly told you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, let's do it. And I said, I was stunned. I said, well, you know, all those test pilots, Programs were called have this, have donut, have drill, have that, have what. I said, we can't call it have. I I said, that's have is, is the three stars call sign upstairs. Do you have a call sign, sir? He says, yeah. He says, my call sign's constant. You ought to know that. He says, now get out of here. You got work to do. So I walk out down the hall toward the purple water fountain in the sub basement past the Air Force Council room. And I'm thinking, how are you going to do this, what you've gotten yourself into. And my mind drifted to my bride of just a couple years, Peggy, and it came to me, Constant Peg has a nice ring to it. So, that's how it was named. Gerald Vandenberg, the Director of Ops and Readiness, and Peggy Peck. We lost Peggy in 2002. I will preempt another question. Yes, she did know about the program because she had a TS security clearance. And one Saturday afternoon, General Vandenberg moulted down on me again when we couldn't find a secretary to type a paper. And he said, doesn't anybody know a secretary in this building that can come in and do this? And I said, my wife could. He said, who's your wife? I said, that's Peggy. He said, same Peggy? And I said, yeah. He said, well, okay, uh, she got security clearance? I said, yes, sir. He said, get her in here and brief her. So we did, and it uh, scared her so bad she never would talk to me about it the next 20 years. <laughs> but we briefed her. So... How can we do this? How can we make this happen where we can fly actual Soviet airplanes and train American fighter pilots? Well, I'm sitting at my desk there one day, and I get a call from a colonel. Um, I'll leave him unnamed. And he said, come on up to my office. So I did. He was on the fifth floor, I think, another E-ring. could see Crystal City out of his office. And he shut the door, and he pulled the drapes, and he opened a two-drawer safe, and he op- handed me a manila envelope, and he said, take a look at this. Well, I opened the envelope, and there were pictures. I said, what is that? He said, I can't tell you. <laughs> he said, but it's invisible, to radar, we think. And he said, if this works out, he said, well, I think you can come to your own conclusions about how you might need to know about this. I said, well, who can I talk to about it? He says, nobody. <laughs> he says, you're not briefed. And I said, well, can you brief me? He says, no, I can't. He said, but I suggest you figure out how to get briefed.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you can see things didn't exactly happen overnight. But I did figure out how to get briefed. I got briefed in on Have Blue. And Have Blue was the prototype articles of the stealth Fighter, the F-117, the prototypes. You notice the tails are pointed in instead of out. It's a smaller airplane. So, fortunately, I had a gang of three, I call, established. I was at the air staff. Um, my friend D.L. Smith, who downed the Paul Doomer Bridge with laser-guided bombs during linebacker and sadly was lost at Cleveland Lakefront Airport when he jumped out of a T-38, a Thunderbird airplane, after they hit birds on takeoff and didn't make it. And Glenn Frick was my guy at Nellis. When we flew MIGS, he was the guy that was making all of that happen. And uh, Glenn, sadly, we lost him a leukemia a few years ago. But this was the gang then that came to do this. There are leadership lessons in my talk, and they fall mainly into the category of trust, in that our general officer leadership, of which we had great leadership with General Vandenberg, General uh, Donnelly, Major General Jim Curry was the PR, the programs and resources. Uh, Colonel and then later Major General Dick Murray was the money guy. And these guys trusted us implicitly. We kept them informed. When we had problems, we brought the problems to them along with a solution that gave us the go-ahead, no micro at all. We ran the operation, the Gang of Three. So we want to build this airfield and secretly fly, and they're going to need a secure home for this operational derivative of the F-117 if it works out. So it makes perfect sense that we can fly MiGs in the daytime and the stealth fighter at night, and everybody will be happy. How can we do that? Well, we had a lot of meetings. And finally, one of the generals said, well, you know, there is this Secretary of Defense's Emergency Military Construction Fund, which is a $10 million bucket of money which has already been approved by Congress. All we have to do is tell Congress about how we're going to spend it. Well, it became my task to convince the whole rest of the Department of Defense that we should get that $10 million of money. But that wasn't the end of it. How do you bill something secretly without competitive bids, and so on and so forth. Well, Someone else said, well, I think there was some law called the Econ Recovery Act in 1932, which was a precursor of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, a part of the recovery from the Depression, etc., which allowed one government agency to transfer money to another government agency through something they call a MIPR. I forget what it's called, but it just means that you can transfer money. And so somebody else said, well, yeah, Department of Energy has sole source contracts, they have contractors on staff to build to things, to architecturally design things. Homes in Narver, in Orange, California. RICO, Reynolds Electrical and Engineering Company in Las Vegas were those contractors. So, man, we get this money, and then we transfer the money to the Department of Energy, and then we get the Department of Energy to task their contractors to use our money to build our airfield. Wow, what a plan my job to make it happen. Uh, It didn't happen overnight. We looked at a number of places and finally settled on Tonopah. Um, And so we settled on Tonopah because it's a pretty remote area. And um, if you look at this one here on the up left, that's all southern Nevada. Las Vegas is here. This is the town of Tonopah. This is the Tonopah test range up in the far northwest corner of the training area. And so, if you look at Tonopah, it was an old mining town. What are miners known for? Keeping their mouths shut. Nobody wants a claim jumper, right? Um, So, the highlight of their center show is the Mizpah Hotel, where some guy uh, allegedly murdered a prostitute. You know, the room is still cold, supposedly. Uh, The main drag, the mining museum, and they had a high school and their high school football team was called the Muckers. Whoever heard of the Tonopah Muckers? You know? Nobody. So this seemed like a pretty good place. They seemed like a good idea. So we got into a Cessna 207, five of us, uh, with Chuck Holden, Colonel Holden, a major at the time, in the left seat. And I was in the right seat. We had Colonel Jay Whitney, who was a commandant of the Fighter Weapons School, in the back seat with a couple other guys. And we went to Tonopah. We'd flown over Tonopah, but we'd never noticed Tonopah before. And when we got to Tonopah, we understood why we had never noticed it. (laughs) Because that's what it looked like. And um, that's looking to the north. That tarmac was as bad as it looks in that picture with grass growing through it and all kinds of stuff. A typical desert airstrip. So we were invited then over by Mr. Sam Moore, who lived down this road here in this compound... And he was the main guy working for Sandia Corporation out of Albuquerque for the Department of Energy. And their mission at Tonopah Test Range was to test nuclear weapons release systems. So the bombers and the fighters that were capable of carrying nuclear weapons would come down through the range and would test release of shapes uh, to make sure they all worked. So we listened courteously to Sam Moore's briefing about his mission. And then he said, now, boys, I'm glad you're here. We don't get many visitors. What can I do for you? And I said, well, uh, I was a spokesman, uh, even though Colonel Whitney was with us. I said, well, Sam, um, we're thinking about perhaps improving your airfield to the point of uh, being able to put some jet operations here. And he looked at me with these coal, steel, blue eyes and said, Major, that may be among the worst ideas I've ever heard.
1: <laughs>
0: I sensed a problem.
1: <clears throat>
0: so I said, Well, Sam, is that your Convair parked out there on the tarmac? He said, It is. I said, May I assume that you can commute with your people every day from Las Vegas? He said, You may. I said, what, How long does that take you? About an hour, hour and a half? He said, About that. I said, That's each way, right? He said, Yeah. He said, so if you were able to go in a 737 or 727 and, and reduce your commute time by half or better, what would that do to your productivity? He said, Major, I think I'm starting to like the way you think.
1: <laughs>
0: and he became a wonderful ally for us because there was an awful lot of work to be done in Albuquerque with the Department of Energy to persuade them to get on board to make all of this happen. But it did. It did. And so as I was walking back out, I surveyed that valley, and that's looking to the east towards, uh, for those of you that have flown at Nellis, that's Cedar Pass down there, or maybe it's here, I'm not sure which, I forget. Um, <clears throat> miles and miles of nothing but miles and miles. I'd never been any a place where I could see any further and see any less. <laughs> Incidentally, Bob Hope said that about Alaska, not, you know, plagiarizing. So I'm on my way down to Luke to look at the Gila Bend Range. As another alternative, and on the back of a napkin, I sketched out. I said, "We could take Sam's little short runway and extend it. We could put turnarounds. We don't need no stinking taxiways. Uh, we don't need a control tower. We build a little tarmac patch here and put three hangars on it. We have a maintenance area between one set of hangars and an ops area between the other set of hangars. We put our fuel out here in POL areas. Sam still got his compound over here. He'll be happy." We'll build him a little pad to park his Convair or whatever he gets, you know, a 727 or whatever on. And by the time I got to Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport, I'd convinced myself that Tonopah was where we needed to go uh, because of the proximity to Nellis, the Red Flag, the Fighter Weapons School. The Navy was already talking about moving Top Gun from Miramar up to Fallon. So the proximity just made perfect sense. So I didn't even go out and look at Gila Bend. I ended up back at the Air Staff and I had to put together a briefing book because I had to clear this. I had to get a top line through the Air Staff and then take it to OSD and get a top line through OSD in order to get the Secretary of Defense's money. Well, that all worked out. Down at Tactical Air Command, D.L. Smith was working hard on uh, a concept of operations. Along the way, we um, decided to invite the Navy and the Marine Corps to participate since they've been participants in Have Donut and Have Drill, Have Ferry. Um, I ended up getting an assistant secretary on the third floor of the Pentagon to sign off on it for the secretary. And so we were good to go. So I went across the river with my little briefing book and its locked briefcase, and I briefed the chairman's staff of both the House and Senate Armed Services Committee and Appropriations Committee to fulfill our part of the requirement to notify Congress on how we were going to spend the SecDef's emergency military construction money. And that all worked out just fine. The Navy accepted our invitation. They said, We really want to play, but we don't have any money. We said, That's no different. You know, we know. <laughs> so One day I'm sitting at my desk and my phone rings and this guy says, uh, Peck, I, yes, sir. He said, This is Augie. Augie. Oh, yeah, Augie at Homes in Narbor. Yes, sir. Um, That's the architect. And he says, uh, can you come out to Orange for a powwow next Friday morning at 8 o'clock? And I said, I'll be there. So I was. And he took me upstairs to this conference room in these smoky-windowed, all-the-way panoramic. You're looking over the dirigible hangars there in Santa Ana, and, and it was a clear day and all. It was beautiful. And there was this long, skinny table down the middle of this conference room, and this room was full of engineer guys, I think, because there were slide rules and hip pockets and these little... Pencil pad protectors in their pockets and stuff. The room was full and the table was covered. It had it had lemon water and it had fruit and pastries and stuff like that on it. And every chair was full or uh, was filled except for one at the end. And Augie told me, he said, you go sit there. So I sat there. Should have had a clue that something was coming because I already had pastries and, and, and fruit already on a little plate. I didn't have to go grab for it like the others. And so Augie starts talking about this um, architectural and engineering plan, everything from concrete to heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, electrical, halon in the hangars for fire protection, et cetera, et cetera. And the further he went through the brief, and the more I'm leaning forward. And um, he gets to the end, he says, well, Major, what do you think? I said, Augie, I think you've hit a home run. And he said, hmm. He said, well, and about that time then, this started to look like a tennis tournament where all these people along this table would look at him and then they'd look at me and back and forth like this. And finally he says to me, well, well, Major, are we going to do this project or aren't we? And that's when I first realized that I'd been suckered into a civilian decision briefing that I had no authority to uh, to host or to make the decision. I took a deep breath and said, we're going to do it. It's a go. And these guys all jumped up and they started beating each other on the back and hoopla and then carrying on. I'm saying, my God, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so I got back to the Pentagon uh, the following Monday morning, and uh, the general said, "You done good, boy. You're okay." So uh, we pressed on. And these are some of the original blueprints that I found up at Tonopah later, and the museum here has a copy of the complete set of blueprints for all of it for hopefully a future uh, display. So then I'm sitting at my desk at the Pentagon again, and my guy at Nellis, remember that was Glenn Frick, he calls me and said, what do you want first? I said, give me the good news first. He says, TAC has agreed to set up the squadron on the 1st of April. It will be called the 4477th Test and Evaluation Flight. And I said, well, Glenn, why is it going to be a flight? It's supposed to be a squadron. He said, well, they figure it would be lower profile as a flight. I said, okay, I can live with that. What's the bad news? He said, the bad news is I made colonel, and the colonel's group is already telling me I'm going to Egypt in October. I said, Glenn, what's going to happen to our project, our plan? And uh, he said, I don't know. He said, I suggest you call Jay Whitney and Colonel Ron Clements, the leadership there at Nellis, and ask that question. So I hang up, and it's not two minutes. still staring at the phone, and it rings. And uh, Peck, yes, sir, this is Jay Whitney at Nellis. Um, you interested in coming out here? do you hear what happened to Frick? Yes, sir, I did. He said, Are "You interested in coming out here and finish this project that you and Frick uh, got started?" Uh, Ron Clements asked me. The wing commander asked me to call you and see. <laughs> I said, "Can you see me smiling? Uh, if you'll, if General Vandenberg'll let me go, I'll be there with bells on." And so that is what happened, and that's how I ended up back at Nellis. Okay. So this is a picture that I found on the internet, and I didn't realize that that international markings on the tail. So don't anybody call me out on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I'm sitting at my desk one day, and Major Jerry Huff comes in. And he says, hey, boss, I'm a brand-new guy now at Nellis. I'm doing the aggressor training program. I'm flying, learning to fly the MiG-17, same time. And he comes running in my way. He says, boss, the first Cessna 404 is here. I'm going over to McCarran Airport this afternoon to pick it up. And I said, Jerry, what's a Cessna 404? He says, you know, the airplanes that we, we leased. I said, we leased airplanes? He said, yeah, we leased three of them. Didn't we tell you that? I, I said, no, Jerry, what are we going to do with them? He said, boss, how are we going to get to work? I said, oh, how many seats? He said, 11. I did a quick count. We had 29 hands at the time. I said, I guess that'll work. I, Jerry, who's going to fly these things? He said, mm-hmm. He said, didn't I tell you you're due at Terra Training in the morning at 8 o'clock to start your FAA multi-engine checkout? <laughs> and so all of the pilots on the project got FAA multi-engine ratings, we parked the airplanes on the ramp at Nellis, there by the Thunderbird hangar, where the F-16s are parked in the shades now. Every morning at six o'clock, everybody showed up. We manned up and we went to work, <laughs> and the project started coming together. This is the <coughs> this is the tarmac with the footprint for the three hangars. Uh, we had the concrete laid in because Mig's leak, and uh, Mig jet fuel and asphalt don't mix. They make slurry, which is bad. So we had the foresight at least to have uh, parking pads there and for our refueling hard stand. Um, And they poured concrete. These are actual photos from their archives up there, their civil engineering at Tonopah. And we had some visitors. Uh, The wild mustangs wandered through leaving their calling cards. Um, We were able to accept them as friendly visitors because they were able to keep their mouths shut. And so the compound came together. And you can see the, uh, see the final parking area there, the three hangars. We had to call in some portables because we didn't think about things like supply storage and, and vehicle maintenance and age, aerospace ground equipment maintenance and stuff. So we did need a little bit of augmentation. Our men ended up getting some trailers, so if they had to overnight up there working on a project, they had a place to bunk. And so that worked. So you can see it did come together. And looking at it from a high altitude picture, You can see pretty much like the napkin with the long runway and the turnarounds, Sam Moore's compound for the Department of Energy's uh, nuclear weapons release system testing in our little compound. So from the very beginning, we manned up. We had two GCI controllers, and our concept and our mindset was that of replicating the Russian or the Soviet as closely as possible. And... uh, so our aggressor controllers were very able in helping us rendezvous with our students who were launching out of Nellis, typically, and uh, then we would meet in the area under a GCI vector. Uh, they also, our GCI guys, were able to simulate the integrated air defense system and give us vectors from beyond visual range when we were doing setups from long range apart, uh, and that was good. Um, and they used the radar at Angel Peak uh, during that time frame and actually controlled us from Nellis using repeater uh, radars up there. Fortunately, we had another man of vision, Bobby Ellis. And Glenn Frick hired Bobby as the chief of maintenance, and he totally was a jewel. Um, uh, I can't say enough about him. He's, again, not with us anymore, and that makes me sad. Uh, He took airplanes like these that were dug out of the Iraqi desert. We had no pictures of our original uh, aircraft. Um, like this, just because of security. It was just all clamped down so tight on us that uh, we didn't have any. But but our airplanes were barely suitable for museum display, perhaps with an awful lot of work from a restoration facility, uh, and certainly not man-flyable or close to it. And Bobby and his gang of geniuses followed this mantra of the Blue Angels pilot here, who's talking about the importance of maintenance, and how the pilots just borrow the airplanes for 45 minutes or so at a time. The rest of the time it belongs to maintenance, and without maintenance you have nothing. And that was certainly true. And our maintenance guys took those Hulks and turned them into safe, flyable machines. We didn't even pre-flight the airplanes. The pilots walked out and got in. We had that level of confidence in our people. One day I'm sitting at my desk and Bobby Ellis comes in and says, Boss, we need a truck. And I said, Well, Bobby, that makes sense. What kind of truck do you have in mind? you need a pickup, a step van, or what? He said, Well, actually, he says, What I need is a check. What we did is we already bought the truck. It's up in Salt Lake City. So um, (laughs) (laughs) he said, uh, Can you go to Mary Jane? I haven't talked to you about Mary Jane, but I did mention Colonel Dick Murray, who was the money guy at the Pentagon. And what Colonel Murray did is he established somehow through money-only-known ways, a conduit, at the Pentagon, and the other end was at Mary Jane's desk. So he'd pour money in, and Mary Jane had opened the spigot, and money would come out. And I'd walk into her office, and she'd say, is this going to cost me thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands today? I'd say, Mary Jane, just write the check. This is what it's for. And so Bobby got his truck, and they became the DRMO scavengers. Now... DRMO stands for Defense Reutilization and Management Office. Those of us in the old days know it as a salvage yard. Okay, And so these guys took their fancy damn truck and they went all over the west of the United States and they harvested stuff. And they built a TV station with stuff they harvested from White Sands. Uh, they built Jeeps so that the commander didn't have to walk up there. No two parts on the same Jeep had the same on the same Jeep had the same VIN number, um, and so they did wonderful things. And that was Bobby's truck. Um, that's Bobby there, and um, the rest some of his ombres. I won't try to name them all. I could, but I won't. In the background is one of the vans. That's one of the first things they started picking up at the DRMOs, so that they then had lift, and they then were on the road almost continuously with these trucks getting stuff that we would need for our job, and it was all important stuff. Those are our original hangars in the background before they were painted Creech brown to blend in with the desert. Uh, that's an inside joke. I apologize. <laughs> um, and then Colonel White on his watch as the third or fourth commander, the truck came up for a, for a overhaul, and so they had it painted red, and we thought that was appropriate as well. Okay. And we outfitted with MiG-17s. That's the initial arrival. I'll show you a short clip that shows you how well the MiG-17 turns, and um, there are two clips. The first one, you're in trail with the MiG-17, and all of a sudden the MiG-17 pilot pulls back on the stick, probably pulling six or seven Gs, and you'll see the attacking airplane starting to overshoot badly. In the second clip, you'll see the gun sight of a 105 being drug through a MiG-17 because the pilot didn't have the G available to hold the Pipper on the target. There's no sound to this, so you can see the MiG there. You're in trail with him, and now he sets that wing, and wow, immediately you're overshooting. And here's the one with the uh, thing going through the gun sight. That missile doesn't hit anything. I ought to take it out. Okay, this is the, this is the Have Ferry airplane, the MiG-17 we knew as 055. So I've got a lot of just pictures of MiGs that I thought would stimulate your interest, and as we go through those, it'll go fairly quick. We continue the story, though. And we equipped it with MiG-21. I landed the first MiG-21 at Tonopah in July of 1979. It was a flight of six, four MiG-21s and two MiG-17s. And that's a cockpit of the MiG-21. When I got in this airplane to check out, my crew chief was the assistant chief of maintenance, Don Lyon. I looked over at Don. I said, I can't fly this airplane, Don. He says, how come, boss? I said, Don, I don't know where all those switches go. He said, hell, boss, just put them all up. And I said, oh, Okay. (laughs) But you can see how busy that cockpit is, and there is the ubiquitous white line that's up and down the dashboard instrument panel of every MIG. And that's what you do if you're out of control in the MIG. You put the stick forward on the white line. It's one of their techniques. Not a bad idea, actually. So here we have a MIG-21 on takeoff. And the... um, the afterburner on the MiG 21 is a harder light than a T38 or an F5 but not as hard as an F100 or a 105. Rudder becomes effective at about 30 knots and its hand pneumatic briefing or braking to keep it uh, straight until the rudder is effective. Nose comes up about 140 or so, much like a T38 gets airborne about 160, 165. Um, the gear comes up, the gear handle goes up. Once the gear is up, the pilot checks visually for all the little indicators on the nose and on both wings that are retracted, which indicates that the gear is up and locked, and then the gear handle is replaced to neutral to take hydraulic pressure off of the system. 300 knots, you pull the uh, engine out of afterburner, accelerate to 400 knots, maintain 400 knots until you intercept .9 Mach, and standard climb from there on out. So here's one of our jets all unmarked over Tonopah. That's the, the uh, lake bed test range lake bed there at Tonopah. One of our jets landing after it had been painted. And the runway had been redone a little bit. talk more about that in a second. And this is one of our jets landing. These film clips, incidentally, are from the Systems Command film made called Have Donut. And we took clips out of it. So it's got a drag chute, comes down final approach about like a T-38. Drag chute's pretty effective. It has a nose wheel brake. That the pilot selects with a switch, very effective in braking. Of course, you don't, can't use it after your rollout because you can't turn when the, you're using that brake, obviously. Uh, the braking system in the airplane is pneumatic. In both the MiG 17 and the MiG 21, you squeeze a lever on the stick and it puts squeeze on both the wheels. And then you push the rudder pedal the direction you want to turn and it releases the squeeze on that opposite wheel and the nose wheel casters. So when guys are learning how to taxi these airplanes, they look like little fishies in a stream, you know. Uh, taxiing is harder than flying. So we flew the hell out of them. Weapons school F-16 and trail with one of our MiG-21s. Um, this is a wonderful clip because it shows the comparative difference between the MiG-21 and the F-4. And it helps you grasp the challenge of the Vietnam War when the guys showed up at 6 o'clock. You see that? And Big Ugly, the F-4 smoking like a hussy, and the MiG just kind of a tiny little jewel out there in front. Yep. Tiny little jet. And then we equipped with the MiG-23 eventually. This was after my watch. I did not have MiG-23 experience, except I did come back with the 18th fighter wing from Kadena in the F-15s, and I flew a sortie against a MiG-23 flying an F-15, so that was interesting. I won. Um, (laughs) Another shot, same airplane, different paint job. And we have this airplane in our threat training facility at Nellis. If you're ever in Las Vegas and can get someone to get you on base at Nellis, my phone number is unlisted. Um, The threat training facility is unclassified, And visitors are welcome, but you do need a host. Okay? They've got this airplane in there. They also have a MiG-29 in there with the canopy and the cockpit open. All right? So we had A-10s come and visit. We had to cut down some of the the fence in order to get this guy's wings through at one point in time. And sometimes the A-10s play here in formation with a flogger. We've got his wings forward. Flogger does. Playing uh, with our C-model F-15, the air superiority game. Flogger in the traffic pattern, here his wings are forward. You can see the landing gear is starting to come down. The the ventral fin is still all the way down. If you go and look at the one on display here at the museum, you'll see it's up 90 degrees. When the gear comes down, the fin folds up on the side to get it out of the way. Sometimes the F-14s came in and refueled, in this case on our refueling pit. Uh, We only did that once where they allowed, were allowed to taxi in and out because they blew stuff over everything with all of their jet blasts. So after that first experience, the guys tell me, thereafter, the Tomcats shut down and were towed in and towed out. So that was fine. Nice looking airplane, huh? Sometimes we flew as a flight of two. Sometimes straight up. We got some T-38s, and that was good. We were able to give our enlisted guys incentive rides. Initially, they were all painted white, and um, here we have a later time when the T-38s wore war paint like uh, like the MiGs. And this is Captain Mick Simmons, one of our MiG-21 pilots, and he had given this young airman a ride, an incentive ride, based on his performance in the F-117 end of the field. And if you look closely, you can see this kid has got a smile on his face, but he's wearing lunch all the way on the front of his flight suit and on his G-suit. <laughs> so eventually our fleet of T-38s grew to five, and our pilots all maintained their 60-1 Air Force proficiency and did all their instrument checks and everything in the F-5. It gave us great logistic support. We could go cross-country in them and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. We had some Thunderbird crew chiefs uh, that came, or painters actually, that came to work on the team after my watch. And I'm told that any time these airplanes went out cross country, whatever pilot was flying it, they had his name stenciled on the side of it, just like the Thunderbirds. So they took pride in a lot of the little things like that. We had five of them, and um, it was a great part of it. We were able to give other incentive rides to VIPs, to uh, photo chase, and of course we had no two-seaters and we had no simulators. So every time a man uh, flew a Mig for the first time, he was flying it for the first time, and so we needed a chase. And so we put another MiG pilot in the T-38 and let him chase him. And uh, so that was an important part of the mission for the T-38s being there. Well, one day in August, late August of 79, uh, General Tom Stafford came to visit me at Tonopah. By now, he's the three-star. He was in charge of that half-blue thing or inherited it. So I just knew, although it was never said, I just knew that General Stafford was coming to look at us as an operating location for the F-117. So it was an initial visit. And we showed him, briefed him on all our security. Our security was very well set up by a a retired and now deceased colonel by the name of Don Muller. And Devil Muller set it up so that once you were briefed in, you were in. Once you were briefed out, you were out. Even as a commander, I had no look back after I left the program. So it was very, very good. We gave General Stafford a tour of the facility. He must have liked it because our $10 million project uh, caught fire. You can see we got a concrete ramp. We got two new big hangars for our MiG-23s that we didn't have before. We got a stinking taxiway and a stinking control tower, (laughs) neither of which we felt we needed, but we we got. And so as a result, our $10 million project blossomed into a $400 (laughs) million-plus airfield. This is our operation down here at the south end. This is the first increment of the F-117 hangars. They all had their own hangar, each airplane. And there were two more increments that were built down in this area. I'll show you a picture of that in a second. Um, so the 117s had a home. They're in their hangar. Remarkably similar to our hangars for our MiGs. Interesting, since Holmes and Narver designed them and Rico constructed them. Hmm. And so did the MiGs. And that's what the airfield looks like today. You can see the second two increments. This, our operation was down at the far south end. Okay? It's looking south. So how do we do all this? Well, we got it involved with side-by-side training where we would brief, uh, usually over the phone and have a rendezvous time and a rendezvous point. Our GCI would get us together. The F-5s or the F-4s or the F-15s or F-16s, whatever. Usually a flight of two would show up. As often as not, we would go out with one MiG-17 and one MiG-21 initially, and then we would rendezvous with our two playmates, and then we would each go one-on-one with our own playmates. We'd have them take a look at us, you know, look at us from the left, look at us from the right. When they're joining up on us, all we could look at them and see eyeballs getting bigger and bigger as they got closer and were seeing a MiG for the first time ever in flight. And so then we'd put them back in trail and say, okay, just follow us around. We'd do some Lazy 8s and Shondells, maybe some Rolls. And then um, we say, okay, how do you feel? you feel comfortable? I feel comfortable, sir. Okay, take a perch. And so a perch is an offensive position here with the MiG out front, about a mile back, a couple 3,000 feet high, and the MiG would call fights on. And so the MiG then would start a defensive turn. An attacking airplane would come in. Almost invariably, they would overshoot the first time. We'd reverse and hose them. Because the learning here was when the MiG sets his wing, you got to go into the up. When you go into the up, then he's going somewhere. While you're going up, he's going there, and you can come back down, and you can follow him around that circle like a sewing machine stitch. Works like magic. Then we would put, uh, put the good guy out front and put the MIG back there and show him how hard it was to keep track of the MIG and uh, how he wasn't going to outturn him and how he had to learn to do his own last-ditch maneuvers. Then we'd start head-on, pass canopy to canopy, best man wins. And all this is not a game of, of uh, macho. It's a game of skill and of learning the skills that it takes to get there. Uh, then we go out beyond visual range and set up in a tactical intercept. One of the hardest things a fighter pilot has to do is to transition from a radar picture into a visual picture and acquire the target visually. So that was very much a learning experience. Then finally, we took big gaggles into Red Flag uh, at times and really surprised a lot of people. <laughs> so the ramp at Tonopah was an interesting and fun place. And I like this picture because it has a picture of Ivan. And Ivan is a truck that we picked up on one of our, uh, our trips. Um, the men came to call them dental trips because we went places and extracted stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they would take rolls of toilet paper and duct tape, toilet paper to stick on pointy things and duct tape to tape it down, uh, tape the tarp down in case they had to land in Guam or someplace <laughs> and uh, nobody could look inside. Anyway, these two trucks were self-propelled and until we got those trucks, it took two of these electrical starting carts to start one MiG-21. With this truck, we could start two MiG-21s simultaneously and then drive to the next set of MiG-21s instead of having to tow the starting carts. Uh, These things were a state of shambles. Our men restored them just like they built Jeeps and restored airplanes. They found parts off of other common Type Russian. The Russians make everything the same. So a compressor on one machine works on another machine. An engine part usually will work. And in a lot of cases, they just went down to AutoZone or uh, Checker and found stuff that would work as well. They only had, they built two of them up, and they only had to machine one part, and that was some drive shaft interface that uh, didn't work right with what they had. But they got it done. So a busy day at the office here. You can see our low-profile Cessna in the background over there. <laughs> uh, this is a flat-bellied me with hair and flight suit, um, swearing in, re-enlisting uh, Doug Robinson. Doug was one of our age mechanics, and um, I kept the men all in civilian clothes, and they were exempt from grooming standards because they spent enough time in downtown Tonopah, they needed to fit in. They didn't look, need to look like GIs from the test site. And so uh, we did. So there he is in his torn-up blue jeans and everything. Not a very good picture, but one of our MiG-21s in the background there. Uh, it's a meaningful picture to me especially. I hope you like it too. Uh picture of one point in time, uh, we only had four captains in the squadron. Everybody else had made major. Um, that's Brian McCoy. Uh, that's now four-star General Hawk Carlisle, the commander of Pack half who also jumped out of one of our MiG-23s. Uh, in live to tell about it, obviously. Uh, Mick Simmons, who's a curator, uh, or is on the board of directors of the uh, Evergreen Air and Space Museum, and uh, Nikki First. So they were real proud. They wanted to get an unclassified picture that kind of bandied their colors and their unique uh, posture within being the only four captains in the squadron. So there you have it. So we had a flagship. Every day wasn't a good day. Um, I took off at a MiG-21 with Hugh Brown on my wing on 23 August and we met up with two F5s and we each went one-on-one with our F5s and as I was just getting ready to do the halfway mo- knock it off so that we could switch, I get this uh, knock, knock it off call over the radio and there's a smoke smoke column. Hugh Brown got it in a spin evidently. I never did see the training report because I lost my job over this. But I never did see the accident report. But um, uh, we think that he got into a spin and then recovered from the spin and then over-aggressively tried to pull out and snapped it into a secondary spin and was too low to recover. Uh, no attempt to eject. Mark Postai had an engine partial engine failure. He lost enough power that he could not sustain flight, and he crash-landed at 17 in the desert. Uh, when they went to rescue him, they found him on a knoll about a quarter of a mile away, yelling, hey, I'm over here, I'm okay. But he did comment later that that was such a rough ride he would never do that again. And uh, sadly, on the 21st of October, he had a MiG-23 catch on fire on him, and uh, it's obvious that he wasn't going to make it to the runway, and he ejected on short final and did not make it. So those were our two fatals. Uh, we also lost um, a uh, T-38 uh, jet fuel mechanic who was overcome by jet fuels while trying to purge a fuel cell in a T-38. And, uh, while well, we made valiant efforts to get him back to to to, uh, medical facilities in Las Vegas, Uh, he didn't make it. Ray Hernandez was his name. And so then we had the two others. Uh, This was General Carlisle. He got it out of control, and he jumped out below the level of the hills. Unfortunately, he was over a valley. Um, He rode the seat for a long time, even so. He said he was about to manually try to get out of the seat when it finally kicked him out. And his comment back to Jack Manclark, who was the the commander at the time, was, Boss, we got to look at the barometers in those seats. (laughs) So um, this is an eye chart, I know. Uh, let me take you through just four or five points. This is the timeline, 1979 through 1988. That's our four structure of aircraft. We initially started with four and two, and then two more MiG-21s to give us a total of eight airplanes. And then over time, we ramped up. Now, Mark Posti lost an airplane here, and so they shut down the MiG-17 operation from that point on. But that was the same time we were ramping up with the MiG-23s. So at the height of the program in 1985, we had 27 flyable airplanes. They weren't all flyable the same day, the same time. In some cases, parts were needed to be canned off of one onto another, but we had that many that were flyable. And so over that near 10-year period, we flew over 15,000 MiG sorties and trained almost 6,000 American airmen, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps pilots and WSOs. Uh, we had a lot of challenges. Um, we didn't know how long those engines were going to last, or where we were going to get parts. We had a big problem with migratory birds, called the um, the great horned lark, which is a stupid little bird about that big that likes to eat the the sagebrush seeds from the tumbleweed from the tumbleweed blowing across the tarmac. You get the picture. Suddenly, we had feeding pins out there called a runway for these things when they came through. We even went to the point of of, of hiring a falconer. And the falconer captured a baby falcon and trained it. And this is Jose Oberley, who was my ops officer with the falcon on a met there. Uh, later, commanders decided that it was far more economical to run captains up and down the flight line with shotguns at high port. And so, <laughs> but when the birds were in town, they definitely did impact our program because uh, they we could not tolerate a bird ingestion. Um, Security was always a problem, but it never was a problem. It was something we were always worried about. Home life was a problem for a lot of our people. I'm sure there was more than one divorce. My favorite story is from Bonnie Scott, who was Colonel Scott's wife. Uh, He came to me as a captain. I hired him uh, during the very early days. He was initial cadre. And then he came back and was the final commander. But at our reunion, after I gave this talk, uh, Bonnie Scott met me up in the hospitality room. She said, Gail, I've just got to tell you this story. I said, what's up, Bonnie? She said, well, I got so sick and tired of Mike coming home, smelling like a dog, been gone for a week. I didn't know where he was gone, who he is with, when he was going to be back. And I'd ask him, I'd say, Mike, where you been? You know, what's going on? I can't tell you, Bonnie. I can't tell you. Mike, I'm your wife. You can tell me anything. Bonnie, after two martinis, you'll tell everybody. <laughs> and so uh, she said, so I just got so mad at all of that. I figured out a plan, and he came in one Friday night, and he was worse than usual. And uh, he said, so what are our plans, Bon? She says, I can't tell you. (laughs) She went upstairs and put her face on, and so he's hawking the door to the bathroom. What's going on, Bonnie? Where are we going? Where are you going? I can't tell you, Mike. And uh, she had it all prearranged, and she made a phone call and she heard him coming in the driveway. And so she went and met one of her girlfriends, and they saw a show and pulled a few slots and had dinner, and she came home about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, she said, I got it out of my system. After then, I was okay. She said, but it, it took that little catharsis for my soul to clear over security, home life. Financial, I think that's what ultimately shut us down. So, what did we get out of it? Well, the guys told us unequivocally and without exception, overcoming buck fever. Everybody knows what buck fever is. You know, you're going out, you're going hunting, and you get your gun sight, your rifle sight on the deer, and about that time it starts to quiver, and so you hesitate, and about that time the buck is gone, you know. And so that's what they said was really important. That and seeing a little bitty jet, the notion of never slowing down and getting in a knife fight. We used to tell them that if you get into a slow speed fight with a MIG, that's like getting into a knife fight in a phone booth with a midget. You don't want to do that. Use the vertical. I already talked about that, countering the hard turn. And I also like this analogy that going in the vertical like that is like tying a knot in a rope. Every knot you tighten a rope, the rope gets shorter. So if you think about circles and so on that you're trying to replicate, think about it later. Don't think about it now, okay? And avoid that prolonged turning fight because you need to take your shots and get out of there and then come back if you have to. But uh, you don't want to stay in there and try to write it too hard. Well, the Air Force magazine published a table this past summer, which is referenced right here, August 12. And it said that 1.74 to 1 kill ratio in World War One, and 4 to 1 in World War Two, meaning we shot down 1.74 of theirs for every one we lost. We shot down 4 of theirs for every one we lost. Korea, 6 to 1. You, see, you hear, you know, pundits will argue these numbers, and I'm not here to take you on on that. I'm simply quoting this table, which I found useful. Uh, the Vietnam kill ratio, we shot down 1.85 to 1. We went to Desert Storm, we had no losses, 39 kills and no losses. And when you look worldwide at the Air Force uh, worldwide, F-15, F-16 kill ratios, we had over 175 combined kills with no losses in air-to-air. To me, that's a return on investment. So here's one of the Eglin uh, F-15s. This airplane was at Bitburg when it got its two kills, but I found it on the ramp down at Eglin before they were all sent to the boneyard and took a picture of it. This is a MiG-29 wreckage from the from the fracas in Bosnia where one of our guys swacked this MiG-29 with uh, from an F-15. And so I like to take this point then to go to the final part. What now? Well, our MiG-17 on static display at Nellis. Our MiG-21 on static display at the Armament Museum at Eglin. Our MiG-23 in the threat training facility there at Nellis. And today's aggressors then, two squadrons at Nellis, one in Alaska. And the Nellis airplanes are painted up just like they were in the past, the F-16s in this picture. And the 65th Squadron operates F-15s that are also painted up in the war paint. And the Alaska airplane painted up like Shamu, which they call it. And they're in, aimed at replicating the abilities of the MiG-29 and the Su-30, Su-27 series of flankers. Okay. But we've gone far beyond just the jets. The Nellis range has been enhanced so that if guys fly over the range, somebody's going to shine a radar at them and they're going to have to explain what they did to keep from getting shot down by the missile that would go along with that radar. So the ranges have been enhanced tremendously, and so the surface-to-air missile threat is much more realistic on the range. We've brought space in with the space aggressors. They deny the satellite communications during exercises. They take away the GPS guidance during certain exercises. So that's an important dimension in a real-world type scenario. And, of course, our reliance on computers, incredible. I don't think guys could fly now without a computer-assisted planning device that's done on some mission planning computer as well as everything else. So the cyber commuters, we've actually set up a cyber weapons school at Nellis, which is just starting, and uh, they're going to be aimed at uh, countering the cyber threat. Full spectrum. Our F-15 and F-16 guys uh, and F-22 guys still get the air fight against our allies: uh, Indians, Malaysians, Romanians. Uh, we've had German guys um, flown against the German MiG-29s a lot. I work with a German with an American who flew MiG-29s with the Germans on exchange duty after the wall came down. Fred Clifton is his name, and so and there are a couple of others as well. And so we even had Indian flankers, Su-30 MKIs, on the ramp at Nellis during Red Flag in 2008. So we don't have the exposure that we used to have at our level, but we have exposure. So that's good. So the concluding words are be careful what you ask for. The last time somebody gave me a credit card, that's what we did. So I believe the museum would like for me to host uh, first some questions and answers and then uh, a book signing I'd be happy to take care of um, for anyone that's interested in that. And um, the book uh, has a foreword by General Buzz Mosley, who was the wing commander at Nellis. He also was the F-15 Fighter Weapons School Division Commander, a man who was very, very experienced in flying and fighting against us, and he was gracious enough to write the foreword for me for the uh, book and you might make note there is a website i don't i'm not very good at maintaining it yet so i need a lot of guidance on how to work wordpress but you know so there is a website as well so that concludes what i have to say